welcome to the 114th edition of the Guna Podcast. This is your host, David Udoe, and we're recording on the Monday evening, two days after our 2-0 victory at home to West Brom, with the League Cup game at Bradford 24 hours away. So let's get on with the introductions for this evening's panel. First up, a long-time Guna contributor who made his podcast debut for us back in August, and was very, very well received. So, we're pleased to have him back for another slice of his thoughtful insight. A regular columnist on the Arsenal matters in the Irish Examiner and the author of a couple of books on the Gunners as well as his own regular blog entitled A Gunner's Diary. It's a welcome return to Mr Bernard Agile. Thank you. Next up, a more regular voice on the panel and a man who believes change can be a good thing, an idea for which he has received both support and outright abuse on our website, onlinegunner.com. On occasion... He has to summon up a thousand words plus about Arsenal performances, better summed up in one four-letter word, which makes him the literary equivalent of Jesus's trick with the loaves and the fish. Good evening to the editor of the Gooner, Mr. Kevin Witcher. Hello, everybody out there. Finally, last but by no means least, our original plan was to reconvene our August panel with Mark Ollington, but the great man is in Madrid. Not confirmed whether or not he's scouting for the January transfer window. Still. We've substituted quality for quality with another always welcome returning panellist. He's the man with over 21,000 Twitter followers and is a leading light at the Arsenal Supporters Trust. And for his day job, is a PR advisor to the English Cricket Board. I didn't know that. That's really quite cool. Uh, <laughs> so, he's in a good mood at the moment, given the performance of Alastair Cook and the team in India. He had a fractious exchange at the Arsenal AGM recently with Stan Kroenke, and we look forward to the usual insight he provides when he appears. So hello once again to Mr Tim Payton. Good evening. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about cricket as soon as we're finished. That's really interesting me. But um, there's a million things to talk about at the moment. I mean, obviously it was a less than brilliant week uh, the week before the last when we played Swansea at home. But regardless of that, we've got Tim, and we don't want to take advantage of him, but I actually do want to take advantage of him. Looking at the millions of points in front of me, I'll start at the top, whereby... The Cubs recently announced an extension to our sponsorship deal with Emirates that will see their name remain on our shirts for a further five seasons all the way till 2019 and the ground will remain as the Emirates Stadium, well for domestic games only, for a further seven years until 2028. They received £150 million of this or £30 million a season on the assumption the complete amount is to be paid during the period of the shirt sponsorship. A good piece of business? With a new kit deal also, uh, also to be negotiated, is this the light at the end of a dark financial tunnel? Tim, what do you reckon? It's a good deal. It's, nothing, it's not spectacular. It's not transformative. But it, it moves us forward to where, where we should be. A lot of people have picked up on the naming rights being thrown in for very little money. But the reality is, in England, naming rights are not a well-established concept. If you could sell naming rights, then the Glazers would have sold Old Trafford, wouldn't they? They'd sell anything. And the fact that they haven't even tried shows how hard it would be. If we were at Highbury, there wouldn't even be any question of naming rights. Because whatever you called it, mm -hmm. um, I can guarantee you that my colleague on the left would still refer to it as Highbury. He's <laughs> nodding away very knowingly. So, And actually, the Emirates is now the Emirates. Um, and you try and bring in um, the Kit Kat Bowl and it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of thrown in almost as, as, as a giveaway. What we've got to watch out for is that's a deal that stretches till 2018. And while the £30 million a year looks quite healthy now, I expect it's just solid what you'd expect to get for the shirt sponsorship 
um, in the marketplace at the moment. Mm. At the Fans Forum at the weekend, Ivan Gazidis started off by saying it was the, the best contract in football. Then he added, because you can't count Manchester United because they're on a different level. Um, <laughs> I hope this isn't going to be the approach we take to winning trophies going forward. That's perhaps why we sold them Robin Van Persie, because they're on a different level. So whatever mm. they do doesn't matter. Uh, memo to Ivan, let's try and catch up with Manchester United. That's the point of wanting to be the best. But yeah, no, it is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a a good deal that will help. Bernard, is it saying to you um, £30 million is at least two more players in the summer, or 30 if you're buying the crap that Wenger likes to specialise in? Um, or, or is it just the club thinking the EBITDA is going to be bigger and better this summer? Um, if, if I could see the money translating into the squad, then, then, then I'd be quite happy about it. But whether or not it filters down to, into, into an substantial improvement in the squad I don't know, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure it makes much difference to, to the average supporters it's just part of the the the, 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 the club's business approach to business and it's, uh, I mean the most disappointing thing perhaps for me is that I was hoping that that it would change from being the Emirates to something more acceptable mm. that, that means you're not advertising an airline every time you tell somebody where to meet um, I'd like to be meeting at the Arsenal or, or something that was more related to the club. Mm. What do you reckon, Kev? Well, I'd, I'd actually take issue with Tim's point about people changing because what tends to happen with these things is that the media obviously play ball immediately. And once you've been hearing it on TV for six months, a year, gradually you get used to it. Okay, there's a. Ha- I mean, I never say I'm going to the Emirates. It's interesting uh, thinking about it. I sort of am going to the stadium, or mm. you know, or to watch the Arsenal. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually recall. I mean, obviously, there's a principle in the Guna that we don't actually say the Emirates. Um, I've, the no, a- I've never called it. That. I've never called it. It just doesn't come naturally to me for some reason. It just doesn't sound right. But if you think about other stadiums, they they do change their name, especially in the lower leagues. And I'm, I'm guessing people do actually get used to it. But obviously, you're absolutely right. If there is an established name already, such as the San Siro, you know, people don't start calling it the Giuseppe Miazza Stadium, <laughs> and that's not even advertising, you know. And remember, it was already sold until '19. What they what they sold this time round was, I think, between '19 and 2028, but bundled it into this deal. And just to correct you, David, don't get too excited. The money doesn't come in until 2014. Oh, right. So you may spend against it a little bit earlier, mm. but then we'll, then we'll have no money in 15 right. and we'll be selling all the best players then. So but it's still quite a long way sure. before it makes any difference. It's one of those things. I mean, I mean, the bottom line from what we've all read in The Guardian and the BBC is that ultimately Arsenal will get an extra £30 million. And based on what Ivan tells us every time he goes to press, uh, this money is made purely to invest in the, in the strength of the side, which is a target. However, the other side of, uh, of the, the corporate end of the club is, is our, our chief commercial officer, Tom Fox. And, and whereas the, the new sponsorship deal could be seen as a really, really good thing going forward, Tom's recently come out and stated that the, the club is proud that large names want to be associated with the Arsenal brand and the club is about more than winning trophies. Um, no, he said, he said the fans are proud. Oh, excuse me, I do apologise. And I that was the issue. Um, where do you stand on, on, on Tom Fox and, and that side of the club? Is that ultimately where they're secretly aiming? Um, well, it's certainly very significant to mm. them. Um, I mean, I think even Tom Fox would like to win trophies. 
what he doesn't understand is the English football supporters' view of their club. No one gives a stuff about Arsenal being linked with any big company in terms of pride. They're interested in how much money that we can gain from it if that money is used on the field and used properly to enhance our chances of winning a trophy. But uh, I just don't think that he's quite, he still doesn't quite get the sport in this country. I know he's trying hard. I mean, he's quite an amiable bloke. You know, I don't have anything against him personally, but he's on board to do a job, which, depending on who you ask, he's doing well or he's not doing very well. But, um, you know, he's not running the football team, and uh, he doesn't really tap into the supporters' feelings. Whether or not he needs to is another issue, but I would say, in terms of PR... You know, he's only second to Peter Hillwood in terms of some of the things he comes out with because it just doesn't sound right and he ends up causing a lot of damage. So, um, in fairness to the bloke, it might be better if he just concentrated on trying to get income in rather than persuading us that we should be proud to be associated with anybody when we don't really do not give a stuff. Tim, he's got a relatively strong sporting background such as my understanding I mean is he ultimately going to be our right man for the job do you think it's a strong commercial sporting background rather than sporting background and actually working in other sports where winning isn't so important and you might say that sounds strange but in the American sports of course the franchise system is fixed to give everyone a chance of winning so the worst team gets the best player and it's kind of almost agreed that on this several year cycle everyone will have a go at winning that keeps everyone engaged and and up for it his comments well he partly has to say that doesn't he because you know Arsenal haven't been about winning recently so he's got to try and sell something to his sponsors if you're sympathetic you'll say he was taken out of context and talking about the brand overseas but it just it it does grate a little bit I quite like Tom Fox when I've met him and felt he knows what he's doing but it's interesting he's been in for over three years you know alongside Ivan the two of them will have been paid more than 10 million pounds now and they've gone all the way around the world and found a new sponsor who was uh, our existing sponsor now <laughs> it is a good deal but it does make you it does make you wonder and I expect you'll find that the new kit deal mm. will be announced with either our existing sponsor or that unknown hard to find company called Adidas so you know it does you know it does sort of make you make you wonder mm. the other point that i find fascinating here i think if, if you live in england you come from a culture where in many ways you don't choose arsenal arsenal gets chosen for you probably by your parents or your geography whereas if you're a long distance fan overseas who's engaging just through the medium of how you're watching the game i would have thought that the, the team winning and the team playing good football is disproportionately important to winning new fans because it's not like you're going to have a dad or a granddad or grow up in North London where you pick it up from the more cultural involvement. So I would have thought that it's even more important to be winning to win this big new international group of fans that they want rather than in the UK because all of us around this table might say we want a winning Arsenal but we ain't going anywhere else if they don't. Mm. Mm. True. 
depressingly, you're speaking to a, a UK baseball fan who in 2007 happened to pick the Boston Red Sox, who may or may not have won the World Series that year. Um, <laughs> you glory hunter. Seriously, I'm Man United fan in disguise, evidently. Um, but Bernard, where do you sit on this? Are you ultimately, like me, really missing David Dean as a man who was only the managing director, sorry, vice chairman, excuse me, but seemed to essentially run most of the club and essentially he was an Arsenal fan, like us. Yeah, I think we're missing David. Oh, we're I, I, you feel that, 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 that there's an American corporatisation of the Arsenal that's kind of making us the going concern that we are, but and there's no, that, uh, you miss that sense of feeling. I want somebody there who's, who I see on the train going to the games and, and, and in the stands and, and wearing a scarf and I feel that he's, there's, there's some feeling that it means something to him, that he's not going to, uh, it's, it's not a step on the ladder of his corporate career. And uh, and I'm, I don't really get that from anyone who's there at the moment. It's and and it, it's it, it it's all part of the whole isolation between the fans and the and the the corporate side of the club is that we don't get any sense of them being Arsenal fans. I think you've hit the nail on the head completely there. Um, I think I think I would say this though about David Dean. Mm. You did say that he eventually ran the club. Well, he did um, until Danny Fisman. Uh, became the majority, the, not majority shareholder, the biggest shareholder. But significantly, although Dean's focus was on football, it was actually on football at the expense of business. And for Arsenal to move forward, Dean did need to be moved sideways. Now, what happened was Dean was just given football to concentrate on, and I, you know, did a good job because that is his strength. But um, in terms of the stadium move and Arsenal increasing their revenues, Keith Edelman was brought in to actually take over the day-to-day -day running of the club. And Edelman has been given lots of stick, um, but ultimately he was brought in to do a job and he actually did it quite well because Arsenal went through a tremendously rocky period financially. At one point the tools were down on the building of the Emirates for about nine months because Arsenal just ran out of money. Really? Now, now, in fairness, you could say, well, Edelman didn't do a good job, but Arsenal was spending a hell of a lot of money on the stadium and there wasn't any for players. There was one pre-season tour when I think it was after a World Cup or the Euros when most of the big-name players didn't go, um, probably to Austria, and they, they took EasyJet because they just <laughs> ran out of money. Mm. Um, so... Arsenal went through a very tough time financially and Edelman was steering the ship and, and got us through the other end. By contrast, now we're flying to Norwich. Well, this is it now. <laughs> it's gone to the extreme and in fact it's now counterproductive because we were the, the Invincibles. It was 2002, 2004 when we were broke. You know, mm. Spending every penny we had but delivering on the pitch. In, in some ways the creative tension of Dean pushing for a stronger squad and Edelman pushing to control... To control the, 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 you know, the piggy bank kind of worked very well. My my comment on that would be, I think you said that the comments that got Tom Fox in trouble were talking about it doesn't matter mm. 
it's not all about being a winning team. Of course, David Dean's most famous quote was kind of the one about every morning when he got up and had a shave and looked in a mirror, mm. he thought to himself, how do I get a winning team? But, but that's what, I mean, but Bernard was around too. We felt there was a, a fan in the boardroom who absolutely had one obsession, yeah. make Arsenal better, drive Arsenal forward. And at the moment, you do question, it's kind of like, it's a big corporate body that seems to, seems to exist to, to exist rather than to win. But the interesting thing is Wenger is effectively in the boardroom himself. Yes, mm. he's taken on that role. He's taken, but he's not driving in the way that Dean used to. Mm. So in a, in a <coughs> sense, um, Dean was required as a foil to Wenger to sort of make things happen. Because I, I think Arsene is basically too... Um, Cautious. Yeah. If you like. Get past his value for money yeah. principle. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, so allow him to continue as the first team manager and head coach, but get a director of football. Well, well let's give, let's give a common example, and I hope I'm not stealing one of your future questions. But it is Arsene Wenger who will have told Ivan Gazidis, "Do not pay Theo Walcott more than seventy-five k a week." Mm. Now, should the manager be making a you know what is a financial decision like that, or should it be left? to Ivan Gazidis within a general parameter of understanding the position of the club. Mm. Arsene should explain to Ivan his view of Theo, the role he could have in the club, what he can do, and leave Ivan to decide on the level of contract offered. But it is absolutely, it is Wenger that will be doing the small print of the offer in that deal, as well as deciding whether Theo plays on the right or centre forward. And it's too much for one man. Hmm. Well, it, it's an unfortunate irony that, that this is a man who builds his, uh, his entire career as a coach around, well, developing players. Uh, I mean, the almost inevitable Walcott leaving um, for an undisclosed fee on a long-term contract to go somewhere else in January being replaced by um, Wilfried Zaha from Crystal Palace. The irony being that Wenger can't actually spend as much time as he would or should do on the training ground because he's going to be in the office sorting out someone's 5% pay rise if he's lucky at the end of the season. That's unfortunate. Going back to, to Bernard's last comments with, with regards to the fact that essentially there's a clear isolation between the way the club is run and the club that us being the fans actually follow and support. That led to the Black Scarf March we had before the Swansea game which apparently consisted of between 1,000 1,500 supporters uh, clearly expressing their dissatisfaction with the board. Um, Kev, do you think that these protests can achieve anything? Well, it certainly get a lot of publicity, and uh, it, it's negative PR for the club. No, but the club don't want negative PR, so in a sense they will... Um, they'll certainly acknowledge it's happening uh, privately, um, and uh, they won't like it. But uh, ultimately, I mean, the focus of the Black Scarf's aims, I think we went into um, in the last podcast, um, they're a bit kind of disjointed. Um, and I, I mean, I, I totally sympathise with, with a lot of their um, aims. It's just they're not very realistic. Um, they're way beyond our control, um, even to influence but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with expressing discontent when you're unhappy and uh, making a big noise about it. I mean, my own personal thing is obviously that they've decided that Wenger is not going to be part of their particular protest because they don't want to divide the support. They think the support generally are agreed that the direction the club is taking is a bad one, which is sort of summed up by the likes of Tom Fox saying um, these things which sort of 
indicate a truth, which is that the commercial side of things is very, very significant. And um, I think that's true. I think now, you know, we are being run uh, as a business more than a sporting concern in terms of priorities. What what I, I I'm worried about is that as a business decision, the idea that you don't prioritise winning trophies is actually going to hurt us in the long run, mm. even on their terms, which are financial. Um, so, um, but I mean, in terms of the march, fantastic. You know, it's it's good to see that when people are unhappy, they're prepared to get out and and make a bit of noise about it. And at the moment, that's pretty much all you can do, unless you're going to take that extra step which many have, and withdraw the idea of giving the club your money. Um, I think the most effective thing that, that supporters could do if they really weren't unhappy is decide on a match to boycott. Mm. And then you get, say, maybe 30,000 people turn up for a game. That looks bad. Yeah, Tim, a million different things to pick up there. And I mean, you, you were there, you were either on or there or thereabouts uh, on the march. I mean, how did it go? What was the atmosphere like on it? On, on the walk itself, so I, excuse me. Yeah. yeah, I call it a walk because the organisers are very keen to call it a walk. A lot of people laugh at Arsenal fans for this. They're like, were you walking so you didn't spill your lattes as you <laughs> went round? Um, perhaps sum us up a little bit. Um, I will, you know, a lot of people ask me about that because I come from the Arsenal Supporters Trust, you know, which is obviously about fan engagement with the club and, and particularly as a round of view that supporters having the opportunity to be involved in the ownership of the club has got to be a good and a positive thing. And I will support any group of supporters that put the effort into coming together with a message, with a view about the club, as long as obviously it's not violent or offensive or anything that goes beyond the pale. But if it's a well-argued view, whether or not you agree with it, I am, a, I am a supporter of supporters having a voice about the club. And clearly, they created a lot of debate about things like the club's pricing structure, its commercial strategy, its board, where it's going. I didn't agree with all of the policies, but I agreed with enough of the sentiment and enough of the view of where they were heading. Yes, it will have an impact. I expect in the new corporate commercial world that Bernard referred to, the 12,000 people that didn't attend the game against West Brom because it was too cold or they were Christmas shopping or they'd just seen enough cumulatively finishing with a Swansea game, but they didn't want to come along. But there were gaps everywhere. And I mean, Kev touched on this, but ultimately the accountability now more than ever runs through the turnstiles but it was the crowd of 4,000 and the very small crowds in the mid-60s that did for Billy Wright along with protests I might add about the manager it was the very small crowds I think average crowd of 23,000 over a season that did for Terry Neal along with protests about him the, the, the sort of quaint view that Arsenal fans don't protest don't campaign against their manager don't see how the club can get better, is, is, a, is a myth about the history of our club. At times, fans have come together. So I thought, you know, the, the organisers of the event last week, they handled that very well. It, you know, it didn't turn into a debate about the manager. And actually, I, 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 you know, I, I joined it. I went to a mixture of joining and have a look, but I ended up walking along with, with the Gooners editor. And one of the things we commented on was there was more chanting, more sense of being Arsenal, more sense of community mm. than I've seen around the Emirates, and I'm allowed to call it the Emirates, or Arsenal Stadium, in a long time. Um, 
Bernard, I mean, um, hearing what Tim's just said about the, the protests in the past that have, uh, that have happened uh, against managers like Billy Wright and Terry Neal, uh, I mean, I suppose the main difference is that in those days, I mean, we were a club that existed purely for football rather than um, football as an, as an entertainment industry and business, that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, we all know what the what the ground was like at the the Swansea game that you know the Saturday before last, which was one of the worst days I've had, I've had out of football in a, in a long time. I mean, do you think that the day will come when the unhappiness we have, we have with the directors um, turns into an open protest against the manager? Um, well, the, that that that's I agree with a lot of the principles behind the protests and. And, and I would have loved to still be watching my football a cosy, intimate hybrid. But to, in some respects, protesting against some of the things they're protesting is like trying to uninvent the wheel. I mean, we can't go back to a, a, a club that was more intimate and was our club. And, 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 and in some respects, I think it's hypocritical because they try to divorce the on-pitch matters. But if things were going, if everything was hunky-dory in the footballing world, there wouldn't be any protests. Nobody would be marching if we were challenging for the title. Mm. Everyone would be happy. Um, so these protests are born out of dissatisfaction. You can feel the rising mood of dissatisfaction. If you don't, you know, you'd have to be blind not to notice it. Um, and But whether we can do anything is another matter. I mean, I also question, they want to see, they're, they're protesting for a seat on the board for Red and White Holdings. Are, are these the same people that were, a few years ago, had love, Arsenal, hate, Usman banners? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny how, how things change. <laughs> so essentially, we're hoping for hope. Yeah, I mean, I've said that. I mean, if the crowd chanted against the manager in the stadium on a regular basis, his life would become untenable. Um, Ivan Gazidis, he regrets saying it, but he did say about a year ago at the at the summer Q and A, didn't he? He said that ultimately Arsene Wenger is accountable to the fans, and if the fans stopped coming, or if the fans chanted directly at him in a sustained way that we don't like you, Kev is right. The position would become untenable. Arsenal fans still don't want to go there yet, which is why they make Ivan Gazidis the subject of the chance, <laughs> or the boardroom, or the, you know, the general protest. Um, Do you think there was even the, the, mind, uh, the, the smallest bit of concern in Gazidis' head when you had the 3,500 travelling Arsenal fans at Villa Park um, shouting, you don't know what you're doing at the manager, in the first time in my living memory, I think. Well, they did it at the Manchester United the home game. game. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, so excuse removed. me. Yeah, the yeah. captain did it from the pitch. Well, that's that's sort of indicated quite directly that he wasn't going to be around mm. to me, and uh, that was borne out by uh, future events. Um, so, um, sorry, I've forgotten what the... Uh, oh, the, oh, you don't know what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, of course he's concerned. Well, who wouldn't be? Well, not so much Wenger. I mean, Gazidis, who ultimately... Well, I mean, I mean, well, it's interesting, because in a way... Wenger is so powerful that perhaps Gazidis feels a bit intimidated. Um, I mean, you know, there are two people that really run the club, and one of them is absent. Okay, so that leaves a big power vacuum, which is where Arsene Wenger is sitting. You know, Cronky uh, is basically looking at the, the figures. I mean, Cronky cares this much. Uh, after the AGM, I can't remember the Saturday game. Um, it wasn't Spurs. It must have been. Trippier, wasn't it? Right. Kronke left the match at half time. Oh, yeah. 
That's how much he cares about Arsenal, the football team. All right, he, he he's interested in the investments. You know, I mean, the fantasy island for me is that he's going to wait maybe until the new deals come online and he decides that's the time to sell. Sadly, his track record indicates that he won't, um, especially given the potential growth in the broadband, uh, the value of his broadband rights, which basically I can see in the future games will eventually be transmitted live onto a mobile phone and he'll make a bloody fortune. So, I mean, whether or not he'd sell out in terms of his ownership of the club, but hang on to that, it's a possibility. But um, you want an owner who is ambitious. Now, the Uzmanov situation is interesting because, you know, as a personality, um, he's certainly uh, no angel. But as Bernard mentioned, there's been a huge revision of opinion about him because, basically, before that, there was this illusion that Cronkey would actually be a good owner. And David Dean was under that impression as well, because he originally brought him in. Um, that's turned out not to be the case. So it's, it's really now, what else is there? And at the moment, Uzmanov seems to be the only other player in town. Um, but something's got to change, because we are now being run like an American football franchise, whereby... As long as the stadium is selling out, they're maxing out on revenue. Mm -hmm. They don't have to spend money on players. You know, they're probably making as much money now, guaranteed, as they'll ever be able to. The only way they could make more is by having a gamble, buying some players, winning things, and becoming Manchester United. But they're too damn cautious to do that. That's why they probably love. Arsenal Wenger as their manager because he's the ultimate frugal manager who's not going to go out and yeah. gamble the, 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 put the whole house on which on. is why I think he'll be offered a contract renewal it's also why point. Ivan Kadidis is sent round the boardrooms of English and European football by Stan Kroenke to campaign for financial fair play because what financial fair play does is limit how much clubs can spend which first of all would give Arsenal a greater advantage but by limiting what they can spend it means there's more left behind for the owners to extract it's very similar to the American model Wait, they're talking about if Arsenal aren't allowed to spend some of this extra income that's coming in from the shirts and the TV deals because there's an FFP cap or a Premier League spending cap do you think Stan Kronk is going to give us lower ticket prices with that excess cash? Or do you think it's going to be extracted into KSE at some point? Hold on, this is a man who uh, has been doing this at the St Louis Rams the best part of the decade. And depressingly for us, let's start, this time last year he bought the 40% he didn't own. Um, you know, he, also, he also owes quite a lot of money for the purchase mm. of Arsenal. And it's not clear what the plan is to repay that. Um, so the money's got to come from somewhere. Now he does have his other businesses. He, he bought this big uh, ranch or something a couple of weeks ago. Um, but ultimately, you do wonder if he just sees Arsenal as a potential cash cow, in spite of his record of never taking money yeah, out. He's, he's already been proven right. He bought a club that had a, a two or three years ago that had a two hundred million pound a year turnover. It will have a three hundred million pound a year turnover in two years. And it's part of the best-selling sports rights property in the world called the Premier League. He will make a bit more money if Arsenal were to win a few titles. But sadly for us, if we come fifth 
for the next 10 years, he will own a slice of a much bigger Premier League pie. And that's what he invested into. He didn't, you know, remember that you had Gillette and Hicks, you had Glazer, um, you have other Americans investing in English football. They know that their sport, I'm not a huge fan mm. for the next comments, that you clearly enjoy some of it. Their sport's pretty boring. Only Americans watch it. Our football is brilliant, watched around the world. They knew they wanted a bit of it. Mm. It's quite obvious what was going on. No, there's a couple of cranky points, uh, and I really want to bring up to you, to be honest, Tim. I mean, um, uh, start, starting with, with this one, um, you're one of the, the AST's great, uh, yourself, and one of their greatest achievements is the launch of the fan share scheme, uh, one that an awful lot of people invested their, their time and money towards. But um, it was initiated before Cronky took effective control of the club. Where does that leave the scheme now? Has Cronky showed any interest in selling the odd share to feed the scheme? No, but, but the scheme is, is, is really important and it now has 2,000 members who've invested over a million pounds in about 80 shares. It was very much supported by Danny Fisburn and the old board um, who helped it get off the ground. And you may remember it was advertised pitch side at Arsenal and it was a great way of promoting custodianship and supporter involvement in Arsenal. Ivan Gazidis spoke glowingly and appeared in front of MPs and the media to, to promote his role in it. Sadly, when Stan Kroenke moved forward to make his takeover, he showed little regard for the fan share scheme, bought up as many shares as he could, and has since ignored all requests um, to provide some more shares, a placement just to the scheme, um, to help provide shares for supporters to invest in. We are just about managing to buy shares on the marketplace at the moment, but it's difficult. And of course, you know, the, the, the little debate that I ended up having with him at the AGM was around his support for the fan share scheme and also about meeting with supporters. Mm. Um, you mentioned there that he, he's, he's shown little regard for the fan share scheme. Uh, at the AGM, uh, you challenged Cronky, uh, challenged Cronky on the, the issue of, of his meeting with supporters. Apparently, a promise he made in his offer document, and I, I, I've read your, uh, your answer to him, um, and the actually, I've got nothing but a high five for that. It sounds absolutely great. Um, he claims he had. He had loads of his meetings all the time. Are there any further developments on this? There aren't. He, <laughs> he absolutely hasn't met. And at the AGM, if I just run through the chronology, a colleague of mine my Martha, who is on the Arsenal fan share board, asked about the future of the scheme and asked Stan Kroenke to meet with the Arsenal fan share board members to discuss the future of the scheme. Although this question was put to Stan Kroenke, he ignored it and it was answered by Ivan Gazidis, who gave one of his sort of management speak PR answers about valuing the scheme very highly and he would meet with anybody to discuss it. This was Ivan Gazidis. So Martha went back at the microphone and, and, and said very simply, but we'd like to meet Stan Kroenke to explain to him why it's so important. Again, Stan Kroenke looked at her in puzzlement and didn't say anything. Um, and Ivan came back again um, with, with, with an answer. I decided at this point that mm -hmm. it was about time someone reminded Stan Kroenke that in April 2011, in a legal takeover document, he'd said these words. And it's funny you should ask because I've got the exact words in front of me. <laughs> Mr Kroenke has made it a priority to meet with supporters and fan groups in formal and informal settings. He recognises that fans are at the heart of the club. Their opinions and involvement are important to him. Mr Kroenke fully expects himself, I repeat that word, himself, the Arsenal directors and club executives to continue to engage with supporters for the long-term good of the club. I pointed out to him that, we were, that a long period of time had passed 
and there hadn't been any meetings. I didn't say with myself, I said any meetings at all. He, I think Kent was there, he blustered a little bit and referred to having met with me. What he didn't point out was those meetings with me had come back in 2008 and 2009, ironically at a time when Peter Hillwood was refusing to meet with him, saying <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want your sort in our club. <laughs> there were also other supporter groups, of course, like Acer and Red Action, who haven't been met with by Stan Kroenke. And I think they were also shouting out from the floor by this point, saying that there hadn't been any meetings. Subsequently, Arsenal's PR machine has not come up with a single meeting. And, and you know, Stan Kroenke has not, in 17 months, met with any Arsenal supporters group, even the Colorado branch of the Arsenal supporters, as far as I can gather. <laughs> Um, I think that's great. If anything, um, live coverage of the AGM should be presented by Tom Watt and put on the Arsenal player. <laughs> and Cronky's broadband rights will make more money. Well, they, they did actually show edited highlights, funny Quite enough. Sure, they not, <laughs> not the interesting bits. The other thing was Stan's actual response to Tim's uh, point that he hadn't met supporters since the offer document was, I must have missed something then. So whether or not he his memory is just has gone because he, he has no concept of time um, I don't know but I mean I don't know if he was just genuinely confused I mean I think in a way it's possible he just didn't actually know what he was talking about hmm. I wonder if he even had anything to do with this document that Tim's just read out or he was even aware that he had any obligation to do this because I suspect he didn't write it I suspect he didn't even read it um, I'm sure it was more than just a coincidence that St Louis Rams have been playing uh, at Wembley that particular weekend. It was very convenient. Yeah. Um, of course, Kev asked the best question at the AGM because he asked about how Ivan Gazidis' salary was put together. <laughs> now, this caused panic because, of course, Ivan can't really answer a question about himself. Even that would be too far. So it was left to the esteemed Mr Hill Wood, who rather let the cat out of the bag by saying, well, we benchmark our salaries with the best in the business. Well, we do that for our manager and our chief exec. We don't seem to do it for our players. Um, and then he said, and anyway, we all felt that last year was an extremely good year. In spite of an operating loss of over £30 million. Pounds. Uh, well, um, one wonders how much you'd get paid if they actually made a profit on the operating loss rather than relying on the manager to sell their best players. Uh, I think at that point, um, Gazidis will win football monopoly, I would have thought, one fell swoop. Um, just can't thank you enough. Um, moving into our last sort of 15 minutes, um, moving sideways from the club to the team itself, um, I, I suppose. Um, Got to talk about it sometime, David. <laughs> can't be avoided any longer. Uh, Bernard. Our recent performance, uh, they've been mixed, is a polite way of putting it. I mean, since the last podcast, we've had home wins against Spurs and Montpellier, away draws at Villa and Everton, home defeat to Swansea on that afternoon, and, and then the Olympiacos away in West Brom at home. One decent defeat, whether we like it or not, one academic one in seven games. Overall, has this been a good or a bad set of results? Uh, it's the, 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 the performances have been very poor and uh, uh, even if we're scrape, scraping a few points they don't really reflect how the team is playing and uh, um, and I think we've been quite fortunate really I mean if you look at Saturday's game against West Brom we were fortunate to get two penalties and to come up against the West Brom who were a shadow of the team that have mm. put themselves in fifth 
Um, and it's been the case in various games where we scrape points that uh, uh, that we could, we might not have got, and, and and you would have hoped we would have done better if we'd have had a better side out. Yeah, that, I, I agree completely. I mean, I mean, Tim, what do you think? As far as I'm concerned, there was one excellent performance in those games uh, against Spurs at home, and the rest of it was dross, wasn't it? But even the Spurs game, it was only in, up until the Adebayo got sent off that the, that the performance started happening. Prior to that, Spurs looked like giving us a hammering. We got very lucky there. Not only did they go to 10 men, but the man who was causing us most difficulty, Adebayo, went off, who's absolutely who you wouldn't want sent off because Defoe does not hold the ball up when you have a lead and you, you cannot say for certainty but that game did not feel like it was heading towards an Arsenal win did it? No I mean no, no. <laughs> so basically Spurs were running the show uh, with 11 men what happened was tactically uh, they weren't able to uh, mark our midfield out the game once they were reduced to uh, 10 men because Defoe didn't know whether he should hang up um, as a forward or drop back and, and mark Arteta which I think he'd been doing before Adebayor's dismissal um, so tactically um, the fortunate thing was that Arsenal scored I think made it 3-1 before uh, Villas Boas I love saying that was um, able to make his switch which uh, turned them to 3-5-1 um, uh, uh, which, which actually then gave them about 10 or 15 minutes where we were a little bit on the rack even though they only had 10 men. I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a home crowd so scared <laughs> at being in a, with a two-goal lead with yeah. 10 men as when Gareth Bale went through on that oh, goal. You, you, everyone could see what was coming. Fortunately, he just went wide. I mean, fortunately, uh, because you know they had 10 men, they ran out of steam in the end and, and you know we were able to basically kill the game quite comfortably. But, um, I mean, in terms of the performances... You do have to wonder why we've gone quite so off the boil. Um, there's an element of fatigue, I will give that, because the likes of Cazorla have played every game. Um, and they're still adapting. Yes. I, you know, I, I was a, a critic, or more of a critic, of the summer's transfer dealing than many, not because I didn't believe that at various stages of good and very good they were all worthwhile signings, mm -hmm. but everyone underestimates the overseas player you've really got to wait till their second season to see them consistently and see them perform as they can. They are adapting to a faster game, every game that they play in, and a faster turnaround of big games, and they all hit the wall at some point. I, don't, I, I think that you, you name me a good overseas player that has done it for nine months, and they've hit the wall at the same time. There's no rotation there. It's not a bad first 11 or first 14 even, but there's no depth at all. They're mm. running on empty, there's no rotation option, and there's little confidence and tactical awareness in them, and it all come together and given us the perfect storm of the last few weeks. Is it depressing the manager putting too much faith in injury-prone players in the sense that he's expecting a lot more out of DRB and Rosicki and the likes of that than he's received, but then? Um, if he has, then he's, he's not, not the, the same man that I thought he was because I don't think Diaby's track record over the last few years would ever suggest we're going to get a full season out of him at some point. This was a man after the Liverpool game. We're, you know, we're all, all delighted that he was actually just like a new signing. Yeah, I mean, you know, a fit Diaby would make all the difference to the current side, but I don't know. Uh, uh, so you never, ever have assumed on it or banked on it. Yeah. 
And I think I'm correct in saying, you know, even disregarding what we did around the, the January when we signed Arshavin, Benga's come out in the last couple of weeks and essentially said he's looking for two players in January. Um, from a certain point of view, he probably needs more than that, doesn't he? Because we've shown severe weakness in coverage around the, the whole of the squad. I mean, we've only got one centre forward. Well, one guy we like to play a centre forward being Giroud. Uh, despite the fact Podolski has made a lot of his career there, um, he's never played there. Jovino apparently is no longer uh, a left-sided midfield player. He's a centre forward in the making, so he needs at least a forward. We've not but had an injury crisis yet. The players that have been out injured are the players that you would almost expect to be. That's what worries me when you have that bad luck run of two or three injuries at the same time as a couple of suspensions. If that comes in late January, what's going to hit us then? Kev, um, of all the players who could come in um, in January, it looks it looks as though Thierry Henry returning for another loan spell is almost certain to happen. Um, having read his interview today, Philippe Auclair, despite having um, an excellent biography of Thierry out at the moment, doesn't think it's a great idea for him to come in January. What do you think? I agree with Philippe. I, I think basically, you know, Henry's got a, a legacy. Um, in fairness, even last January there were games when you could see he'd completely lost it. Now it just happened that he scored two goals which live long in the memory. The Leeds game uh, which is ultra special and obviously that, that late winner against Sunderland. But there were other games in which he came on for like 20 minutes and did absolutely nothing and he'd already lost it then he's just able to just give a final curtain call playing from memory um, and, and get two lovely goals he also got the one against Blackburn which he probably was chalked off by the bloody goals panel I can't remember but that was we were 7-1 up or something then, so it wasn't quite so significant um, but I, it's just I mean I accept he's a good influence in the dressing room you don't have to give him a contract for him to to be that He's already doing his training with them to keep in shape for the MLS season. Um, the idea that you're going to play him, presumably because Jovino's off and Shamak's off, not that Shamak's ever used, so that's not really significant, but obviously Jovino, you know, in theory he needs cover, so Henri will do that. He'll make some 10, 15 minute cameos. It probably won't be as good as last year. I, I just can't see the sense in it. What do you think, Bernard? Would you have Thierry back just for another four or five weeks? Uh, I'd rather remember Henri as the, the player I remember him now, and, and with him, you know, these uh, these uh, constant curtain calls every winter, it's kind of it's going to spoil that memory eventually because he's, he's not the player he was. Um, and it, and it's what it says about the club, you know. It says that we need someone, but we are, you know, that instead of going out and spending them getting what we need, we're harking back to our history and seeing if we can get, you know, dig out one of our heroes kind of thing. So there is actually also a marketing angle to it. The club may be thinking of that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much money they make from the return of Henri. Maybe they sell quite a lot of shirts. He hasn't, he's not going to have a very nice number unless he's Thierry Henri number 13, what lucky for he, some. What was he last season? 12. Giroud. He was because of, oh right, okay. Mm. Uh, there's there's nothing room to go in. but because he's part of the first team you have seven in between one and thirty that's Wenger's rule um, 
I know he might get negative 14, who knows? I mean, Tim, what do you think? Uh, is it something we have to do, or is it like the idea of a Forty Towers Christmas special? It finished when it needed to finish. I can't, earlier on, I heard Bernard talking about living within what Arsenal are going to do in reality, and while I agree with all his comments, I kind of. I'm going to take the upside on this because Arsenal's not going to do anything else. <laughs> you know, all that frustrates me. And I'd quite like us to spend some of the £70 million that we all put in as fans in ticket prices on a world-class player. I feel, you know, if we don't get um, Thierry Henry, you know, who knows who'll be playing in that role. So... It's going to happen. Let's be positive about it. He puts impact in the dressing room. But I agree with the other guys. I don't think it sends the greatest message about where Arsenal are heading You know, at this stage mm. of the club's development. Are we going forward? Is the team getting better or worse than how it was six months ago, a year ago? And it feels like every time you ask that question over the last two or three years, the answer is it isn't getting better. <laughs> the other thing is, is the January transfer window. You've got to remember that, that you know every club on the continent is looking for salvation of some sort, and you can be guaranteed that if there is availability of the sort of players we want, there are going to be people out there who are more willing to gamble on paying much more than we are. And so, why would they come to Arsenal? Could I, could I just ask uh, this Frank Lampard story? Have we heard this? Yeah. I mean, some people are actually very confident it's going to happen. I'll be very surprised. Um, from where I'm sitting, it, it seems almost certain it will go to America and replace Beckham, where you can legitimately be fat. Um, <laughs> and first, with, with the diet, what it's like in the West Coast of the States, um, he ticks all the boxes and then like eats them. Is that where Andre's going now? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think, I think he's, he's going to be the governor. A, a big fan of McDonald's, so he'd be right at home. Have you seen that video? He signed for Arsenal, and it, it was a video done by a Brazilian TV uh, channel that, that shows him walking out of the the, uh, the block at the ground and then he walks up Gillespie Road uh, and he ends up in the fish and chip shop on Blackstock Road no and you've way. got fat, it's on YouTube <laughs> fat Andre Santos having a gigantic cod okay. well say gigantic, gigantic cod could have been a whale and chips and he's there you know and the guy's laughing and he's like no I'm, I'm enjoying this and he gets through in about four minutes that's our reserve left back uh, gents, there are a million things to talk about. There, there really, really are. Um, the fact we're down to the last 16, the Champions League, um, we um, and who we want, let's face it, we're all praying for Malaga. Uh, whether we're going to beat Bradford tomorrow night, um, it'd be interested to see if Wenger actually sends some sperm up there to represent us, or whether he sends some actual players in the hope that we can get a result and get to the semi-final of a competition he hates. But, time for a bit of nostalgia and the current issue of the Gooner. It's available at the forthcoming away matches by mail order from the Guna website and as an e-edition to read on your laptop, tablet or phone. It features an article by Charlie Ashmore on the League Cup semi-final replay at White Hart Lane in 1987. Were you there? And what were your memories of the game and indeed the team at that time? Bernard, this, this must be shouting a million things to you. <laughs> it's shouting to me my premature Alzheimer's. I can't remember anything. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll have to wait until someone refreshes my memory. 1987, the League Cup Ian Allison, final replay. We the the first leg at um, Arsenal was lost one nil. The second leg at Spurs was one two one, and we were one nil down at half time. So there were two nil up on aggregate. It was a Sunday TV game. We came back to equalise in the tie. Away goals wasn't relevant. Um, and then they had a toss of the coin to decide where the replay would be held. 
Tottenham won that toss, so it was a White Hart Lane on the Wednesday night. Um, and I'm surprised you don't remember it, Bert. Is this one nil down to or not? Exactly right. And it, 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 it's been compared to some people as an almost Hillsborough um, in terms of the away section because of how uncomfortable it was in the away section that night. And if you were there, I would imagine you would remember that. Because I certainly do. I was so bloody relieved when we won the, got the winner because I don't think I could have stayed in extra time, such as the fear of my life. It was horrible in there. Um, however, on the football front, what that epitomised to me was the spirit of Arsenal. And it's something which we're definitely missing now with the odd exception, which I would say is probably the likes of Jack Wilshire. I was just watching the uh, Everton Spurs on the computer yesterday, watching when uh, Jelovic got substituted in the end and seeing him slapping the, slapping all his, every, everyone on the bench. To the, you know, it just you just felt that team spirit, mm. and you, it was something that you just know is absent. At we certainly had it then in spades, and it was a young team that was developing with some older heads. It was an interesting mix. You had the likes of Steve Williams, O'Leary, um, Viv Anderson, uh, but you also had the likes of Adams, Rowcastle um, coming through, and uh, Nar Quinn was playing as well at that time. Charlie Nicholas was still at his side then, uh, although he was taken off injured, I remember, after being crocs by possibly our Diaz, I can't remember, or maybe Graham Roberts. Graham Roberts, Graham Roberts. everyone. Graham <laughs> but... Uh, it's, it's gone down as a legendary night and Charlie's piece on it in the issue is brilliant. It brings back a lot of memories. But it was the development of the team that then became champions by it winning was. at Liverpool. It, it, was the, it was almost like it was, it was the night the glue was made that, that, that put that team together, went on to Wembley, started to get a habit for winning trophies again and undoubtedly it was the making of the team that was to win its first championship in 18 years, two years later. Mm. Right, There's, it's almost time to wrap up, to be honest, but before we do, a reminder that the current issue of the Guna, issue number 230, will be on sale outside the stadium for the away games before Christmas, with a brand new issue out for the West Ham and Newcastle matches. Finally, the usual reminder that if you want to email us about anything related to the podcast, our address is gunapodcast at gmail.com. And with that, it's goodbye from Bernard. Goodbye. Kevin. Goodbye, everybody. And Tim. Good night. We'll be back in 2013 when the turkey sandwiches have all been eaten. Let's hope it's not Arsenal getting stuffed and that we enjoy a few wins before we next reconvene. As someone once said, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And this is your host, David Udo. Thanks for listening. La di da di da, la di da di di, all good friends and jolly good company. Well, hey!